From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae, along with Dr. Tom Shives. Depending on where it is on your body, a lump or bump may be something harmless or a cause for concern. How can you tell the difference? And when should you see your doctor? We'll get answers about lumps and bumps from Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. David Farley. Also on the program, it's tick season, and these tiny creatures can carry some pretty serious diseases. We'll talk about the best ways to protect against tick-borne illnesses with Dr. Bobby Pritt. And planning a picnic that's both nutritious and safe with dietitian Kate Zaratsky. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, our bodies are usually pretty good at signaling when something is wrong with us. It might be a fever when we have an infection or sneezing and watery eyes when an allergy kicks in. Lumps and bumps are another signal our bodies sometimes send when something isn't quite right. It might be a lump in our breast or a bump under our scalp. But some bumps aren't serious and others are. Here to talk about lumps and bumps and what they mean is Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. David Farley. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Farley. Thanks, Tracy. David, nice. Nice to see you. Pleasure, Tom. So I think part of your day, probably every day, you see lumps and bumps. And tell us about some of the most common ones you see. And let's start with the the head, neck, breast region. Sure. Lots of lumps and bumps. And first and foremost, most lumps and bumps are benign. They're not cancer. Um, Usually some part of the skin, an infectical follicle, a lipoma, a little fatty tumor underneath the skin. Uh, I do some neck surgery, thyroid lumps, sometimes noted. And then lymph nodes will get big sometimes when people are fighting an infection. So lymph nodes uh, in the head and neck region uh, can be anywhere on the neck. Uh, Is it true? I've heard that if it's the ones, uh, or maybe I even learned this, the ones that in the back of the neck are enlarged, it suggests that you have mono? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, The lymph nodes are basically a response to fighting something. And the lymph nodes are typically associated next to big blood vessels. They're there to clean the blood um, and clean your body of blood. As far as mono, I don't know that I would say I've ever taken out a lymph node in the back and found mono. Usually mono goes away, and our good physicians recommend you don't need an operation or taking that out. Most lumps and bumps will go away if they're lymph nodes. So uh, most lymph nodes, when they become enlarged, it's because of an infection, some sinus infection, throat infection, infection, ear infections, etc. Absolutely. Tonsillitis, pharyngitis, inflammation of the mouth. People get big lymph nodes, kids especially, in the back of the mouth or in the neck. They're responding to that infection. What about, though, when a lymph node doesn't go back down when you start feeling better, but it stays swollen up? What does that usually mean? Well, Usually, that's a sign of somebody needs to take a peek at it because a lymph node shouldn't stay big. It should get smaller over time. And we're always nervous. Could this be a cancerous process of the lymph node, so-called lymphoma? And that oftentimes has other symptoms. Um, but a infectious lymph node typically gets big and then will drift back down to normal. It may take a month or two or three. But if it stays bigger, that's something that probably a physician should be seeing. Is it something like, I'm thinking about a pimple, that can get plugged up and then that's why it swells? Or, I mean, the infection part aside, when you start feeling better, but sometimes if it doesn't get smaller, is that part of what happens? Yeah, you know, you can have a cut on the mouth and uh, the cut gets better, but all of a sudden you notice a big lump underneath your 
uh, jaw. Mm-hmm. And that node has been trying to take care of those um, bacteria, and they do a wonderful job of it. I had that happen as a college student, a little crack in the mouth, and it was three or four months having a golf ball sitting underneath there, but eventually settles down and goes away. Nodules of the thyroid, are those usually picked up when uh, someone goes in for their general examination and the physician feels a nodule in the thyroid, or do a lot of people come in having seen them in the mirror? A lot of people, especially people like Tracy, skinny ladies with skinny necks, they will see the lumps either in the shower or more likely cleaning themselves, all of a sudden say, "Uh uh-oh, what is that? And um, people will follow that usually for a week or more, but then they'll be speaking up to say, this isn't right. And if they can see it in the mirror, they're definitely coming to the doctor. Isn't that kind of uh, the overall that we're talking about here is a lump or a bump. Usually you can see it. And so that is that is part of what makes people so nervous and wants to go. If it's inside, not a big deal. It's in there, whatever. It's it's a nodule. It's getting bigger. But if it's something that you can see, that makes people want to come. You said there's a certain size yep. that most patients usually will show up and say, yeah. all right, it's too big now. That's exactly right. Seeing it or feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes guys like me are chubby enough that you can't see it, but you can definitely feel it. And usually when you get about three centimeters, a little over an inch, almost everybody wants the lump out. Do thyroid nodules uh, follow the general rule that you mentioned at the very beginning that most lumps and bumps are benign? Yeah, I would say about 95% of all thyroid nodules are benign. Most thyroid nodules are not seen nor felt. With an ultrasound or a CAT scan or imaging, you can see it. And basically, however old you are, I'm 54, I've probably got about a 54% chance of having a thyroid nodule right now. Most of them are very benign, harmless. Can you tell that without a biopsy, without taking a little sample? Ah, good question. Um, a thyroid nodule, um, if it's looked at with an ultrasound, you can tell it's a cyst full of water. That's unlikely to be a cancer. With the ultrasound, it's a wonderful test. You can look at it and say that's actually a papillary thyroid cancer, the most common and the most easily treatable of all thyroid cancers. But just to look at it and for me to feel it or our endocrinologist or our internist feeling it, it's tough to tell. But there's sometimes some, some sensation. A harder, firmer nodule is more worrisome than something that's soft and fleshy. So bottom line, if you have a lump in your thyroid, you ought to have it checked because there, even though the chances are small, it could potentially be a cancerous tumor. Absolutely. And they happen frequently in um, women 20, 30, 40 years of age and, and on. And I would say this pertains to any lump or bump, but um, this would be a spot when it comes to the thyroid that watchful waiting can be part of the conversation because um, I know that we've, when we've talked to thyroid experts, they'll say maybe those don't all have to be yanked out of there. Maybe thyroid cancer is not such a thing that you need to be so entirely concerned about. You can monitor it. And when it comes to a thyroid nodule in particular, what do you feel about that? Or what do you advise patients? That's exactly right. Again, 95% at least are benign. So it's not it's not harmful. And now we've gone so far as to say medicine has gotten so good with the ultrasound that we're finding tiny little cancers that are three and four millimeters. And there are certain places in the world, Japan especially, that it says, we're going to sit tight and just watch this because this is not a threatening cancer. Other lumps and bumps about the head and neck that uh, that you see that you can tell us about? Uh, from time to time, people get parotid lumps and bumps. Usually that's infection, inflammation, but you can get a tumor in the parotid gland. Now, where is the parotid gland? The parotid gland is sort of sits at the angle of the jaw, sort of just below the ear. 
Um, you can see lumps and bumps in the head and neck that may be skin problems, actually a melanoma or a basal cell cancer. That's on frequently. Our farmers that have exposed heads at the top said, hey, I got this little pimple up top, Doc. It's not a pimple. It's actually a sun-exposed uh, cancer. Um, are most parotid tumors benign? Most are, yeah. And do they need to be removed? Parotid need to be carefully taken care of by somebody a lot smarter and more technically <laughs> adept than Dr. Farley. Our ear, nose, and throat uh, surgeons are for superb, and uh, they will give a recommendation whether or not it needs to be removed. And a lesion on the scalp uh, ought to have somebody take a look at that, too, whether it's a cyst or some potential skin cancer. Absolutely, and it's some, some of the problems there is you can't see it yourself, and uh, whether it's a spouse or a loved one helping you out, but ideally a dermatologist, internist, a physician taking a peek at it would be a good thing. Get it checked. Absolutely. We're talking about lumps and bumps and what they mean for our health with Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. David Farley. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, myth or matter of fact, it's definition time, Tom. <laughs> a cyst is a type of bump that is usually harmless. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our guest, general surgeon, lumps and bumps doctor, Dr. David Farley. So we've pretty much covered the head and neck region with regard to lumps and bumps. So let's talk next about the breast. Obviously, uh, a big concern to uh, a lot of women because it is a fairly common condition. Again, are most of those picked up by women doing self-exams or by their physician or the, the mammogram that's taken periodically? Yeah, I think all three. Uh, I couldn't tell you exactly, but um, women that are doing monthly breast exam, they'll be the ones that typically will find the lump. Those that come in annually and expect their physician to find it, physicians often will. And those getting a mammogram that are 40, 50, or years older um, may find something on a uh, mammogram. I would have, there's so many different types of breast lumps, though. You've got some that are on the outer edge and some that are deep inside, and then you've got the ductal ones. Um, all of them mean something different. I mean, depending on where they're at or what the size they are. Yeah. I think that's why a physician needs to be involved. Mm -hmm. um, invariably, especially early on, most lumps and bumps are benign. So a 10 and 20 and 25-year-old woman will have a lump in the breast. It's typically a fibroadenoma, a little bit of scar tissue. It's a benign thing and uh, may never need to be dealt with whatsoever. Um, as we age, 30, 40, 50, or if we have a family history of breast cancer, lumps and bumps are more meaningful. Having said that, most of them are benign. That's what I was going to ask. Is there any way to say... Most of the lumps that women feel, most of them are benign? They are. Wow. Um, sometimes uh, a bruise turns into a, what's called fat necrosis and makes a little bump. Usually we're not perfect, although uh, Fifth Avenue may want to say that every model is gorgeous and pretty and no lumps and bumps. All those ladies have lumps and bumps in the breast, the fat lobules, the breast lobules. There's always a little variation. But again, ought to be checked out. Ought, ought to, to see your physician about it. Or I'm ready for myth or matter of fact. All right, myth or matter of fact. A cyst is a type of bump that is usually harmless. Yeah, 99% of the time, harmless. And cyst, can you tell pretty much by feel that it is, in fact, cystic? That is fluid-filled and not solid? Or do you sometimes need imaging? Sometimes you need imaging because sometimes that little balloon, if you will, that fills with water fills up so tight it's rock hard. And I've been fooled on a couple occasions. I've been nervous. And sometimes we don't need an image. We just put a little needle in and the fluid comes out and say, oops, the lump's gone. 
Uh, speaking of common lumps, let's go to lipomas. Tell us what they what they are and uh, where you most commonly see them. It's a benign fat cell that decides to just get bigger. I'm not sure why this happens. It happens uh. all over the body. There are some people that make lipomas, 40, 50, 100 of them in their body, little bitty things to bigger things the size of a grapefruit, if you will. Most people will have one or two perhaps in a lifetime and almost never know it because they stay small. They're typically almost always benign. Uh, the only time we've seen lipomas become really evil is when they become liposarcomas, an actual cancerous process, and they typically much, much larger. If you leave them alone, is there a chance that that happens? I guess there's a chance, but I'd hate to say here that everybody out there needs to have their lipoma removed. Mm-hmm. If there's a significant change in size, then I would think about removing that lump. Right, and usually it's a different disease. I mean, a lipoma is almost always a lipoma, and liposarcoma a different problem. Um, do you ever see, uh, I know you see these in the in the abdomen, what's called the retroperitoneum, behind the lining of the bowel. Uh, have you ever seen one of those that uh, you initially was benign that then became malignant, or don't most of them start out as low-grade malignant? It's a great question, and it's a tough thing to answer, because underneath the microscope, a lipoma and a liposarcoma early on will look exactly the same. It's mm. tough to tell the difference between the two. Another uh, lump that I know you see, hernia. Mm-hmm. And uh, those almost always uh, in the groin, or can you see them elsewhere, or around the uh, the belly button, huh? Belly button. You can have a hiatal hernia, which I can't feel. That's inside the chest by the esophagus. And what does that mean, hiatal hernia? Hiatal hernia is where that feeding tube slides down into the stomach, and there's a transition from the chest to the abdomen. And that hiatus, that opening, if you will, is too open, and things can regurgitate back up, and people will have reflux. Um, oh, so that's when the acid from the stomach refluxes back up into the esophagus, and that hurts. That's right. Bile will get into the esophagus, the acid will get in there, and people don't like that, and they get chest discomfort. So the esophagus isn't built to have, to, to have acid li- um, on its lining. Correct. What about lumps on the legs? I mean, I when I think of lumps, I do think of the fatty tumor. You mm-hmm. know, people that have one, it's they name it and it's there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Fred, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I've also seen those people have them on their legs. Um, is there is there a different type of lump that you would get on your leg, or is it the same type of fatty tumor? It's the same type of fatty tumor, but there's other things that can make lumps and bumps. Sometimes you can get a bump that uh, everybody's worried about, and it turns out it's a varicose vein. It's a soft bump that you can push on, it goes away, and uh, grandkids find it on their grandparents. Um, There are other lumps that are cysts, an infected follicle. There are other sports people that get a bruise, get trauma, and there's a a woodiness to it. Maybe it's a necrosis, as we talked about, to fat necrosis. Things change over time, and we tend to get more lumps and bumps as we age. You know, I saw you also had on your list lumps and bumps on the genitals. Why don't you ask the first question? Is that really on my list? (laughs) No, well, I know that that, well, it depends, you know, for men and for women, I'm sure these are two different questions, or are they? Are those the same types of lumps or bumps? Lots of different lumps and bumps there. I'm not an expert on all of them, (laughs) but um, most likely a hair follicle that gets infected, uh, swelling develops, Uh cysts happen, um, not infrequently. Sure. And Most things, again, benign, follow that rule. Correct. Yep. But, again, something you ought to have checked out. Yep. And when it comes to just in general, if you find a lump or a bump, uh, like you said, if it's a thyroid, when you see it when you get out of the shower, you notice it, or something on the back of your arm, how long should you watch it before you say, all right, it's been around for 10 days or one month? How long should you just let it be before you go in and ask for help? Great 
question, and the answer is going to be depends. There are some people that are um, highly anxious, and they're going to need to get in there within an hour of finding the lump or bump. Um, truthfully, if I found a lump or bump in myself in the neck, I would be watching that thing over the next week or two. And if it's not changing, not doing anything exciting, I wouldn't be compelled to go see my physician. Because lymph nodes, you know, someone that might have a bump in their neck, they think that it's a thyroid, but it's a lymph node. The lymph nodes are all over the body, right? Absolutely. And it's just some of them are easier to feel than others. Right. So if do the ones that are, you know, underneath your armpit or down in your groin, do those ones swell up just like the ones in your neck do? Absolutely. Um, we operate on people with lymphoma all the time, and our colleagues need to get tissue from those lymph nodes so they know which chemotherapy to get. And we do this on a daily basis. We take out lymph nodes to show what type of tumor we're dealing with. You know, as Dr. Farley indicated, lymph nodes, uh, like most things that are, are benign, uh, either will not get any bigger or will go away. I think one of the keys here is if you find a lump or a bump somewhere, if it continues to enlarge, you certainly ought to go have it checked out. Absolutely. And one more thing for the watchful waiting, uh, no matter where it's at in the body, you, sh- you can watch and wait and see after you've had it looked at by a doctor, or are there some areas where it's better than others, where it's okay to do watchful waiting and others where it's not? Um, again, it so much depends on body sure. habitus of the patient. Uh, as Tom says, a lump that's getting bigger, progressively bigger, that's not a good thing. There are certain lumps. Heaven forbid a skinny person had an aneurysm of a blood vessel. That wouldn't be something that I would watch for weight until I'd had a physician to give me a good recommendation. Aneurysm? It's a swelling. It's an uh, outgrowth of the blood vessel, the um, aortic aneurysm among the most common Um that's up. something you don't want to wait and, and watch. That is definitely not something. Get too much bigger or burst. No. And even then, I will say, Tom, that the average aorta is two centimeters. You can wait until it's four centimeters. The data would suggest it's not any risk for surgery early on. We shouldn't be doing surgery early on. should wait a little bit. You mentioned varicose veins earlier, and I just started thinking, is there a time when a varicose vein lump can get to be too big? That just is a cosmetic problem, or if it gets big enough, is it? Is there something more significant? We've got a few people from time to time as we age, the skin gets thinner and it breaks down and the skin breaks down over it. It's compressed so much that the blood flow into the skin is poor and then you have some ulcers and erosion and then we get some bleeding through that that probably ought to be seen sooner rather than later. Yeah, but fortunately there are worse problems than that. Ah. That we can take care of, right? (laughs) Dr. David Farley, Lumps and Bumps Doctor, General Surgeon in Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, it's tick season, and along with these tiny parasites come some pretty harmful diseases. We'll tell you how to protect yourself against tick-borne illnesses. And we'll talk about how to incorporate nutrition and food safety into your next picnic. Our dietitian Kate Zeradsky, has the answers. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with a Mayo Clinic News Network headline. 
Ah, the sun. It feels so good to bask in it. Well, doing so can increase your risk of skin cancer, including melanoma, which can be deadly. A study from the British Association of Dermatologists shows people are not taking this seriously. Researchers there found most people get sunburned, not good, and they don't check themselves for suspicious moles. Prevention and early detection are key, says Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. So if you're wearing your sunscreen and photoprotective clothing and monitoring your skin once a month and you see a new lesion or a changing lesion, go to your primary care doctor or a local dermatologist who can assess it for you. If it ends up being a skin cancer, the early it's detected, the better your prognosis and chance of cure. Dr. Davis says if you're worried about a mole, go get it checked out. Do not wait. It could save your life. Blood clots and birth control pills. A study in the journal BMJ, the journal of the British Medical Association, suggests most new types of birth control pills are more likely to raise a woman's risk of blood clots than older formulations. The study uh, measured the risk of um Blood clots and veins uh, among women receiving different types of birth control pills and showed that um, the later or newer generation birth control pills actually have a higher risk of blood clots and veins compared to uh, the second generation of birth control pills. Mayo Clinic Dr. John Height says the problem is that if a blood clot develops in the leg, there's a chance it could travel to the lungs, which can be very serious. But even though there is increased risk with these new pills, it is still very low. If um, a, a woman has, for example, a family history of uh, venous thromboembolism or something else that makes one more concerned that that, sh that woman is at higher risk, then preferably one would use a second generation rather than a third generation pill, recognizing that the risk uh, for both generations of pills is still very low. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Despite their tiny size, they can cause diseases with some pretty impressive sounding names. Diseases like anaplasmosis, babesiosis, ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and Lyme disease. I'm glad you had that in your <laughs> script. Yes, these are all tick-borne diseases. And now that the weather has warmed up and many of us are outdoors hiking and gardening and picnicking, we thought it'd be a good time to get an update on protecting against ticks and the diseases that they carry. Here to help us with the update is Mayo Clinic microbiologist Dr. Bobby Pritt. She is also the director of the Clinical Parasitology Lab at Mayo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Pritt. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we hear so much about ticks, mm -hmm. particularly this time of year. Uh, and Lyme disease in particular in this part of the country, is that the most common tick-borne disease that we see? It is, yes. And actually, it's the most common tick-borne disease in the United States, and it's the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. That means out of all the things transmitted by mosquitoes, ticks, and other types of bugs, Lyme is the most common. So we probably want to know how to keep from getting bitten by a tick. What can you do Absolutely. to prevent them? <clears throat> Well, it's really important to take precautions, especially when you're in areas where ticks are prevalent and you know that the ticks are carrying organisms that can cause disease. So there's a number of things. First of all, you should know where ticks live. They live in long grasses, uh, in 
bushes and shrubs in forests. So if you have mowed your lawn, you probably don't need to worry about walking across your lawn. But if you're going for a hike in the woods, you do need to take some precautions against ticks. So probably the best thing is, first of all, avoiding tick habitat. But people like to be outdoors. They like to do fun things. So you don't want to just stay inside for the rest of your life. So go outside, but then protect against ticks. Um, that's usually most commonly done by just wearing long clothing. Uh, you could wear long pants, tuck them into your socks, wear long sleeve shirts. Of course, in the summertime, when it gets really hot, you don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. do that. And that's where you want to wear an insect repellent. That's where DEET comes in, right? Yes, DEET exactly. makes me nervous. You know, it, should it? Should I be afraid of DEET? No, don't be afraid of DEET. It's safe. Um, if you use it the way it is recommended on the label, and there are different strengths of DEET, so you'll want to read the instructions carefully. And it, it really is not harmful to adults when used properly. So it sounds like you want to mow your lawn frequently. It's one way to keep the ticks out of your yard. Right. Where, where else do these ticks hang out? They like tall grasses and shrubs, bushes, leaf litter. So walking through the forest, sitting on stumps, uh, that's all areas where ticks would be present. Now, are they looking for someone to come by? I mean, how yeah. is it that they end up on a human skin? So they are looking. In fact, they're actively looking, and that process is called questing. So what they do is they crawl up a blade of grass or a twig or some sort of vegetation, and they extend their little legs out, and they wait for something to walk by, whether that's an animal or a human. And then they latch on, and then they just crawl around the body until they find a place where they can take a blood meal. Does it ever happen, or how often does it happen, that a tick gets on your dog or your pet Mm -hmm. and ends up on you when you're petting your animal? I think that that's probably fairly common. It might not go directly from your pet onto you, but your pets certainly are going to bring ticks into the house, into your environment. If your pet sleeps with you at night, into your bed, into your close vicinity. That's Uh, why you don't let your dog sleep in your bed. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of reasons, but that's the best one. That's right. Or you just make sure that you don't get ticks on your pets. Very good. Well, uh, what about if all of those best laid plans go awry and a tick winds up on you and attached to you? This is when we want to make sure that it keeps its head attached to its body. Yes, yeah, so you want to take the tick off of you as soon as possible. And the best way to do that is just to use uh, fine forceps. Just pinch down by the head where it's attached to the skin and just pull it out regularly just using a consistent pressure. You don't want to twist it. You don't want to squish it. Uh, You want to avoid anything that might introduce its gut contents into Mm -hmm. your skin because that's where the harmful organisms live. And um, and you don't want to use some of those home remedies like putting nail polish on it. The goal is to get the tick off as fast as possible. So you don't want to suffocate it to death. You just want to pull it off. They're so small, though. How can I tell if the head stays intact or if the head is still in my skin? You know, I wouldn't worry so much about that. If you do your best to get as close to the skin as possible and pull the tick out, then that's going to be good. Your, If there's any little bits of that tick left, usually your body is just able to extrude it on its own. Hmm. You know, I like, we used back in Iowa, in the old days, we used to take our lit cigarette and put it yeah. next to the tick and then it <laughs> sort of back out. Oh, isn't that, that worked pretty well. You know, we also usually <laughs> avoid days. against doing that because you might irritate the tick in the process and again cause it to <sighs> maybe regurgitate. You don't want to irritate the tick. No, no, I do not want the last any thing you want. You don't want it regurgitating in your body. And if you... <laughs> If you end up with West Nile virus, how are people diagnosed with that? How do you ever first key in that that's what's wrong? Well, 
usually people will present to their physician or their provider and they'll have certain signs or symptoms that would be consistent with infection. West Nile virus, um, they may have mental status changes, so they might feel a bit confused. They may just have a simple fever, and then the physician would have to order the correct test to make the diagnosis. Tell us about the symptoms of the Lyme disease and who ought to be concerned, because it seems like the symptoms and signs are multiple, and anybody who has aches and pains or a rash thinks they have Lyme disease. What are the real signs and symptoms? Well, it is a bit challenging because aches and pains are some of the symptoms of Lyme disease. It's commonly described as a flu-like illness. So people will have aches and pains. They may have a fever or they may not. But then other common symptoms would be joint pains, uh, very commonly a rash called a bullseye rash or targetoid rash, and that occurs at the site where the tick bit. So it looks like a bullseye there. It does. It looks like a red bullseye with uh, clearing around it, and that occurs in 80 to 90% of people with Lyme disease. If you have Lyme disease, I know there is treatment. Is it important to get it treated, or can the body pretty much, through its immune system, get rid of it uh, without treatment? No, you absolutely want to be treated. And so that's where if you see anything that looks like a bullseye rash, or you've had a tick on you that's engorged, meaning it's been attached for over 36 hours, it's best to just go to your physician and see if you either need to be preemptively treated for Lyme disease or if you have a bullseye rash, that's enough in and of itself to just treat for Lyme disease. Where did the tick get Lyme disease? Well, the tick got it after it hatched from an egg. It bit its first animal, and the first animal it bit, usually a small rodent, if that animal was infected, when it took a blood meal, it took the organism up. Mm. So they're not born infected. They get it the first time that they take a blood meal. Can you predict uh, fairly well whether or not it's going to be a a bad tick season or there's going to be a lot of ticks around? You know, it's really hard to do that, and it seems like every time someone tries to predict, it doesn't end up working out. But essentially, ticks like warm weather, but not too hot, they actually require a good amount of moisture. So you might start off with a bad tick season, but then if the summer gets really, really hot and dry, the ticks will dry up, and you just won't have as much uh, tick-borne disease. All right, keep your grass short and keep your dog out of your bed. (laughs) What a happy ending to the story. A hot, Mm -hmm. dry summer dries them up. Right. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Pritt for bringing us up to date on tick-borne diseases. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Pritt, for bringing us up to date on tick-borne diseases. Dr. Bobby Pritt is director of the Parasitology and Virology Labs at Mayo Clinic. You may remember Dr. Pritt from earlier this spring when she joined us to discuss her blog, Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites. You can take a look, if you dare, at this week's mysterious parasite. Find it at parasitewonders.blogspot.com. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, a picnic menu that combines nutrition and food safety will tell you how to pull it off. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shire. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it is not quite officially summer. It is June, and if you haven't been on a picnic yet, hopefully the weather is nice enough where you live that you'll be able to plan one soon. Absolutely, and because picnics take us away from our kitchens, they require some planning, both in terms of food preparation and food safety. For example, Tom Shives, what foods travel well? Is there electricity where you're going to be going? And what's the best way to pack your picnic foods? 
Are you saying that you're out of your element when you're out of the kitchen? <laughs> maybe, maybe, yes. <laughs> well, here with some tips for planning a healthy and a safe picnic is Mayo Clinic Registered Dietitian Kate Zaratsky. Welcome to the program, Kate. Always nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Now, we know that Tom wants to just have hot dogs or at brat, his picnic yeah. or some brats. That's, probably, that's always good. And, you, you know, I mean, all bets are off when it comes to health food when you're <laughs> on a picnic, right? Well, maybe you want to kind of hedge your bets just a little bit. All right. I, I okay, think, Mom. I think the main part would be we want to be a little healthier when we uh, go on a picnic than maybe we have in the past. Right. And there's, you know, certainly I can relate to your hot dogs and your brats. I, I am from Wisconsin. So <laughs> we can find a place for those. But it's it's a matter of... if. if if you're enjoying some of those favorite foods, maybe balancing them with some really nice fresh salads or other fresh fruits and vegetables. And it's tough to take fresh stuff to a picnic sometimes, depending on what the, what the weather's like. Right. And some of those hot days, you need to be a little extra careful about how long that food is out or how you're putting it out. Well, let's do that first. Let's talk about the safety of a picnic because, you know, everybody thinks about the mayonnaise and the potato salad. But what else? Right. And so thinking about the foods that might be more perishable or more sensitive to temperatures, if you're able to, you want to keep those in the cooler as long as possible. But even when considering the temperature when they are out, you might want to place them on ice or, you know, bowl within a a bowl of ice with the salad on top of it just to make sure it is staying extra cold. And if it's above 90 degrees, you really don't want that food out for more than an hour. So Mm. you can get it back into the cooler if people aren't eating it. Hmm. If it's above 90 degrees, food uh, out for only an hour. Right. And what are the foods you really worry about? Mayonnaise, obviously, one, I guess. Right. And I think it would be any foods that, especially foods that are protein-rich, because bacteria likes protein. Hmm. And so any foods that are, you know, any meats or any of, you know, mayonnaise is made with eggs. And so any of those types of foods that have protein in them are ones that you're going to want to be especially careful of. What about cheese? I, I, you know, I always thought mayonnaise more the dairy angle of it, but I guess it makes sense that it's the protein angle of it. Is cheese and would dairy be one of those problems too? Right, because dairy foods are another good protein? source of protein. Sure. And so you want to be careful with those things too and keep them cold. And again, so if it's putting them on ice or just keeping them close to the cooler so you can really just pull them out at service time. Very good. All right. Well, what else should we consider for safety before we move on to a better way? The Heloise part of this program, but what else should we consider for safety? Well, and you might even consider when you're packing your cooler, packing it in the order which you're going to use your foods. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, if there's certain things you want to get out sooner, maybe pack those closer to the top and so you're not digging through your cooler. Uh, another thing would be to keep your drinks and your food separate because people are going to be in and out of that drink cooler more often. And the more often that lid is open, some of that coolness is going to escape. So a couple. If the uh, the beer is cold, what difference does it make about the food? (laughs) So maybe two or three smaller coolers instead of one big, great big cooler. Right, and that's a Uh that's a great way to look at it is just to consider your needs, uh, and especially even, and that brings us into when you're packing the foods. You know, you might be packing for a large group, and so you might have big salads or things like that. You might even consider packing those things in smaller containers, because smaller containers are 
easier to control temperature in. And so in, you think about the middle of that salad. If you really want to keep the middle of that salad nice and cold, a smaller container is a better way to go. And then you can serve it in a bigger container if you would like to. You had sent over some ideas about how to make your picnic a little bit smarter. And one of them I loved was freeze milk container, you know, containers of milk jugs or whatever full of ice and have those be part of your cooler. Right. And so in even some of the, um, so if you have leftover milk containers or other containers, the idea of reusing mm-hmm. um, and recycling and reusing those types of things. Big blocks of ice actually keep things, pr- you know, will keep the temperature of your cooler colder. And so that's just a nice way to go. And it actually controls if you don't want all that water floating around in your cooler, too, just in keeping things nice and dry. I didn't know that. A block of ice works better than the broken up ice? It can, yeah. Sure. See, I told you. She yeah. had these Halloween okay. ideas. Okay. Well, another thing that you put on here that I had not considered was checking ahead to see if there's electricity where you're going because you could plug in a crock pot or something like that and keep stuff hot that you want to have hot. Right. And in in considering, too, the number of people you're serving, if you've done any pre-prep and maybe even pre-cooked some of your brats or your hot dogs or things like that, and you just really want to keep the the temperature, again, safe, um, depending on what the temperature is outside, you could use your crock pot almost as a a service vessel. So you could use it that way. Or if you have other sorts of things that you're, you know, if you're doing tacos or other sorts of casserole-type dishes that you want to keep at a proper temperature, you could use your crock pot for that. What about uh, fruits, uh, which are a part of almost every picnic? And let's say that you've taken them out of the cooler. You put them on the picnic table. They have come up to room temperature. The picnic's over. Do you need to throw them away? What's left? Or can you refrigerate again? Right. Well, that's where they become a smoothie. <laughs> No, I'm no bad idea. <laughs> right, and I think when you're thinking about fruits and vegetables, that's exactly it. If from a safety standpoint, the fruits and vegetables are probably pretty safe. It's just from a quality standpoint. If they become a little bit more soft or something like that, if the quality at all is affected, you might want to consider using them exactly in a different way. Do you know if food poisoning is more common for picnickers than it is uh, if you eat at home? Is, is there any... Or any other time of the year. I guess I always think about Christmas and, you know, and Thanksgiving when you've just got vast amounts of food and large amounts of people and you never know how much to prepare. And how long has this stuffing been sitting out? You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And I think, you know, we hear a lot of around... picnics and such because I think the opportunity for food safety slips is is a, a greater possibility because you are without your refrigerator and you're at the risk of the, the outside temperature and things like that. So I think it's it's uh, we, we talk about it more, but food safety in one's own kitchen is essentially still as important. If you were hosting a, a party or a, even a picnic in your backyard, you run the same risk. And so even if it's a warm day and people are in and out of the house, you still want to maintain a cold temperature with those uh, salads or other foods, or if it's hot foods, keeping them hot, cold foods, keeping them cold, and controlling the temperature. And again, if it's above 90 degrees, if you're in your own backyard, or even if it's controlled temperature in your house, two hours, make sure things are back in the refrigerator and put away. All right. And if Tom Shives is going to have three brats, he's going to need something nice and healthy to balance that out. And you brought along some great recipes that we'll be tweeting out and putting on our blog. What was your favorite one that you had in there? 
You know, one of my favorites in there is the salad. Yeah, there's I love a salad. Yeah, so it's and I think salads when you think about going to a picnic, something oh, it's going to be all soggy by the time you get there. But here's the idea: is you pack, you know, you wash and you rinse your lettuce, pat it dry if you need to, or spin it out, get some of that water off of it. So the lettuce itself is in whatever mixture you like is fairly dry, and you can put it in a plastic container. So that's going to keep. You know that's going to travel pretty well. And then if you're going to have any berries, and this is a this one has actually a macerated berry, and mm-hmm. so it's a berry that's mixed with a vinegar, and so you can have that in a separate container. And then when you get there, you can just mix it on the spot, and it's so simple. So you only eat that if you're still hungry after you've had the brats. <laughs> Maybe brat salad, brat brat salad <laughs> at your picnic. That's what we do. Well, thank okay. you, thank you so much, Kate Zaratsky, for tips on a fun and safe picnic. Kate Zaratsky is a registered dietitian at Mayo Clinic. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. Kate. Good to see you. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.